Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's episode of the Voices of E-Learning. I'm your co-host J.W. Marshall with Summer K-12. With me as always is Lena Marie Saleh with Canva. We are so glad to be on this episode with our guest from Edmentum, the Chief Strategy Officer, Amanda Koken. Amanda, how are you doing today? I am doing great. And we have all kinds of things we could talk about, but before we dive into our topics of the day, we like to start out the show with the same questions um, for every guest. Who are you and what do you love about what you do? Oh my goodness. Um, so Amanda, and I um, am a longtime uh, resident of uh, Northern New Mexico. So I grew up in a small town in Northern New Mexico. I then went off to the big city. Um, and am now raising my kids back in northern New Mexico. Um, the thing I love about what I do is getting to work with really thoughtful, engaged, innovative educators every day. Um, the amount of work that folks are putting in right now to truly problem solving uh, is, is, is frankly incredible, uh, not just through the pandemic, but particularly now as we head out of it um, and what people are bringing to the table, uh, even in their frustration, uh, you know, is, is, pretty, is pretty inspiring every day. And so I love that. I get to come uh, and do my work in my home office, which is where I am now, um, but also increasingly getting to travel uh, and seeing people again. And that is just giving me life. Uh, being on the ground, being back uh, in classrooms, being with people, you know, at conferences is just, it's huge. Um, and so, uh, that's who I am, a little bit about my background um, and and what's given me uh, joy right now. I love that. And I love that we are getting back to some kind of travel and normal and reconnection with people. And there's certainly a sense, um, I unfortunately didn't get to make it to ISTE, but uh, I've talked with a lot of folks that everyone is just so much more appreciative and grateful for the time that they have together than they were pre-pandemic when it was just kind of, oh, another conference or I'll leave a day early. Now people are just soaking in every minute of in-person time. And that is um, really hopefully something that we keep with us as long as we can in the coming uh, years. Um, but we may talk about that and touch on that later. But first, we want to just kind of dive right in to today's topic, which will uh, start out with virtual learning and really laying a foundation of um, your Edmentum's vision for what really makes quality virtual learning and how has that evolved in the last couple of years? Um, it's, a, it's a great question. It's evolved a lot in the last couple of years. And I would say, um, you know, foundationally, it's still built on, on the same core principles. Um, you know, I think one of the things we have to acknowledge up front is that when folks talk about virtual learning uh, in the broad ether, they really have an image in their head of, of emergency remote. That sort of chaotic time in March where people were sent home, uh, educators <laughs> were sent home, kids were sent home, families uh, were just told to sort of make do. Um, and we went from room you know, to Zoom. And so all of the practices that folks had honed you know, many for decades about how to think about classroom management and engagement and curating content and all of that was suddenly was thrown onto a screen. 
Um, and it, it didn't serve a lot of kids. Um, you know, in fact, it, it did the opposite for, for huge swaths of kids. And so when we think about virtual learning, you know, we, I've tried very hard and we've tried very hard in the last, you know, particularly in the last year to say there really is a distinction between emergency remote, um, some of which, by the way, went on for two years. In an emergency, we're not building for sustainability fashion. So, like, it's not just about a week or two. Some of that went on for a very long time versus, you know, truly quality virtual, which is purposely designed um, and thoughtful and sustainable, right? It's something that you're actually going to do as a part of permanence, um, either full-time or part-time, um, both, but it's a very different thing. And I think that's probably the biggest existential question uh, for teaching and learning right now around virtual is just getting very clear about what quality virtual is and what it, what it isn't. Um, and I, so I think that's something that's that's critical. You know, when we think about quality virtual, we actually, and this pro- you know, probably a little bit of surprise, we actually don't think about it as being about the technology. The technology is not what actually differentiates. It enables it. It's a massive enabler. Um, and it enables your ability to do a lot of things, frankly, virtually that you can't even do in a classroom um, in terms of how you engage kids and how you think about content and opportunities and um, access, all of those things. But it really is about people and relationships um, and how you think about supporting educators and making sure they're in a position to have relationships with with kids. And frankly, at the lower grades, it's really relationship with families and caregivers um, and how you're supporting. So, you know, when we think about what does quality virtual look like, it starts with the people, the people that are working to design it, to understand individual student needs and group of student needs, understand their families and what their families bring to it a need. Um, and so relationships to us is at the core of it. Um, the other thing I would say is we get really hung up on modality. So in-person is awesome <laughs> and virtual is bad. Um, and I would say quality is not about modality. It's about the fundamental design of your instructional programming. Um, and so going back to just basic, it's, it's you know, good instruction is good instruction, um, regardless of the modality. So that, those are the things that, that like drive Edmentum and how we think about it is, you know, first, let's bring relationships to the front and the technology as a supporter to that, not the technology first and then think about relationships later. Um, and the second one is just what we've all known for, you know, many, many years makes good instruction is what also makes good instruction when you're, when you're virtual. It's a very um, important perspective because that is the most important part is the instruction piece and not just um, exactly what you're saying. I think sometimes when parents or teachers or anything think about virtual learning, they're like, oh, it's that, what you said, Zoom to the room, basically. They're not really doing anything um, different. The practices didn't really change. What had to happen was that they had to change that instructional practice. But the virtual learning piece, you can still have those enriching conversations and relationships with students. It just has to adapt to the way that they're delivering it. So I think that brings us to the next sort of question. Um, So as the people returned back to the classroom, how has the change in demand for virtual learning? Has there been a change or um, how do you kind of see that shifting with us ending, sort of ending the bits of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think some of what we're seeing now in terms of um, parents, and I'd say students too, because students, particularly at the high school level, have a real opinion about 
how they learn best and what they want and what they want to do, right? So it's it's parents and students. You know, I would say, um, you know, during the pandemic, I think the thing, the the toothpaste that we can't put back in the tube, and I think it's ultimately a positive thing, is that parents had a real window, for better or worse, into what was happening in their classrooms. I mean, if you remember back at the beginning of the pandemic, we we as parents, we saw some stuff that wasn't okay, right? And we got really close to what are they working on and what are they spending their time on and, and what is the, the culture of the, of, the, of the classroom, if you will, on Zoom? Um, particularly those, that, that they, and I'm speaking specifically to those that were sort of in emergency remote. Um, and so I think it sets the tone a bit for, there's a, a dichotomy that's happened. So if you, if you, the polling data, and there's all, this, all these different polls, but they basically say the same thing. If you ask parents whether or not, you know, emergency remote, you know, was awesome, they basically say, no, no. <laughs> right? But if you ask them if they want there to continue to be virtual learning options, they say yes. And I've been asked a bunch of times, like, what do you make of that? And I think we don't give parents or students enough credit, frankly, for understanding what's going on and realizing that, that while that wasn't awesome, there were parts of it actually, and enough parts of it, that make them actually want to see more flexible options, um, both part-time and, 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 and full-time, right? So, like, it's not just everybody, you know, people that want their kids to be full-time virtual, but, like, they saw, you know, rural communities, places where in their brick-and-mortar classroom, they actually didn't have access to particular courses, um, you know, they, and, and the ability to be flexible, you know, as you get into high school, like, kids that actually have to work, you know, suddenly could actually be successful in, in high school. And I think that's what's driving the you know, it's something, some, something 64% in the latest poll of high school parents actually want there to be a virtual option. Um, and so we're seeing, you know, demand at the parent uh, and student level, for sure. And that's driving, I think, for the most innovative districts out there. Um, and some for that have been sort of backed into a bit of a corner for other reasons. But like, you're seeing them say, okay, we're going to provide, you know, 70% of them say, we're going to provide at least as much virtual access, if not more. Uh, in the coming years. And I think that that, that sort of supply demand um, issue around, you know, we demand this. And so there's going to be supply and people are trying to figure out how to meet that supply. Uh, it is no longer kids that just don't feel comfortable being in the classroom because of COVID, right? Like the, the use case has shifted. Um, and I think that that is, that's huge. So for us, you know, we, we continue to see demand. Districts believe that somewhere between 10 and 15% of their kiddos are gonna wanna be um, virtual in some form, um, which is a massive number of children from an enrollment standpoint. Yeah, and then I'm curious, what was that pre-pandemic? Two or 3% or- I'm It was two or 3%. Percent. Yeah, traditionally yeah. it was two or 3%. And I think yeah, the other thing, JW, that I think is important is, um, you know, when we think of innovation, you know, it, you know, Christensen always says, innovation often happens at the margins. And so, that virtual learning was often for, you know, frankly, we, you know, people would say this. They'd say, well, that's for the other kids. That's for the kids that need credit recovery. That's for the kids that are homebound. That's for the kids, you know, the sort of these exceptional cases. I think what we've broken through in the pandemic because people have gotten that window is actually, it's, it, it actually is applicable to all kids, right? That, that middle is going to grow. That middle use case we think grows, um, frankly, exponentially as we think about you know, course access, and even getting ready for, um, you know, what's the future of the future of work and the future of post-secondary, right? So 50% of kids in a post-secondary environment are going to take at least one course. 
Um, we're doing this now over Zoom. You know, I've worked from home in a virtual job, uh, first for a company that was in New York and now for a company that's in Minnesota for 10 years, right? It, I, I travel, I fly, it's synchronous, it's asynchronous, <laughs> but like it is the future of work. Um, and so as we think about its application in K-12, particularly as you think about like rethinking high school, I think the, I think the, the, the use case gets bigger and bigger. Um, and if we try to fight it, I think we're actually holding ourselves back. And at the end of the day, we're holding our kids back. Yeah, and, and we don't talk enough about those students over the pandemic that really thrived in the virtual setting that maybe were more shy or less confident um, and just wouldn't, wouldn't speak up in class, but they had that, felt like they had that power. And now we're, we're making them go back when they probably didn't right. want to. So it's, it's exciting to, to see that, that that level of interest in the virtual options or hybrid options is really maintained at a, at a strong level. Um, I think my next question is, going to go into effectiveness and uh, where's the balance between giving the market what it wants and giving Mm -hmm. the market what it needs and and are we even there yet as far as knowing what worked and what didn't work in in, during the pandemic and where we're at now i know it'll be constant testing and evaluation but give us some thoughts around effectiveness of virtual learning versus the traditional and and where do you see that uh, data taking us yeah, I mean, I think I think the data is we've got to be driven by the data um, for sure. I think, um, and I would expand what we look at in terms of data, um, just as a field. So, like, how do we think about, you know, how, what are the goals for an individual child? Um, how do they get lots of at bats at um, at at showing mastery? They get credit for what they know, but they also get to show mastery. Uh, I think a lot about, you know, inside of a virtual learning platform, there's there's lots of ways to collect tons of data about, you know, things like time on task, which can tell you where is a kid struggling or not struggling. It can tell you about course completion. The other thing it has to do is do what we don't do enough of, which is to ask kids, how are you experiencing this, right? Is this too easy, too hard? Like you can get a lot of data um, just in terms of asking kids, like, was this a good experience, bad kids? We know that actually, you know, kids in order to learn also really need to be engaged. They need to be seen. They need to be locked in. Um, and so there's just a lot of data. We can, I would call it like the, the data along the learning journey. Um, I think there's a lot we can learn still from that. Um, I do think we as an industry have to continue to focus on um, making sure we understand truly, like we've got really good formative assessment. We understand what the goals are for a kid that we're constantly ratcheting up the level of instruction. Um, one of the things we've been really focused on uh, in the last little bit with our uh, our instructional services team is working with teachers to ratchet up ex- instruction. So looking at writing assignments um, across our core subjects as a starting place and saying, okay, um, what's the highest leverage feedback we can give these kids right now, right? So, so it's not about, you know, your punctuation's wrong <laughs> if they're just not using evidence correctly, right? Like, let's, let's figure out what's the thing that can really ratchet it up. Um, and so, I mean, I'm expounding beyond <laughs> your question, but I just think there's a lot of places where we have to think a lot about how we continue to ratchet up instruction and what we're asking kids to do. Um, And that's across, frankly, all modalities. But the cool thing about virtual is that you, it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a, a, like a a, a best case scenario in the sense of you really do have all this data. 
And you really can control for like, these kids are all getting the same assignment. You know, when I um, spent time, I was for, for almost a decade, I was the chief strategy officer at an organization called TNTP, which is an advocacy and consulting organization. I walked thousands of classrooms and, you know, I would sit first with a superintendent. They would tell me, um, you know, this is the program we're implementing. And I'd get super excited. I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome content. (laughs) And then I'd walk from class to class and it's not what the teachers were doing. Like, you know, they were, they were shutting their doors and doing what they want. And I actually understand that to be clear. Like I understand the choices teachers make. Um, I think in a virtual environment, we get a chance to both see and understand in a much faster way, what are the choices that are making and how is that leading to outcomes, both sort of traditional test scores, as well as completion, as well as student engagement, and then work with teachers in a real-time basis uh, to make sure that we're really ratcheting up the level of instruction or fixing things in our content and curriculum. So I just think we have this massive opportunity to do that. Um, I also think we need to be very careful not to throw sort of the baby out with the bathwater. And I mean, you know, when we look at the experience and the outcomes of emergency remote, it's not good. Like it's bad. Um, and so we need to learn from that too, JW. Like what what was it? What didn't work? Because I think there's a lot in there that tells us about the supports that educators need to do this well um, and students and families. Uh, and, you know, it, it's not surprising. You can't just throw people at a in a new modality and expect them to, to succeed, right? Um, and I think it teaches us a lot about that. Yeah, and that reminds me, I think it was the New York Times, the summer of COVID hitting had the story headline, you know, that virtual learning was a failure, it didn't work. And it right. was just so premature, right? It's like, come on, like we literally just transformed our entire education from room to Zoom. And three months right. later, you're going to say it didn't work. So I think that well, makes we sense. We haven't been at that this that long. That's right. We haven't been at this this long. And so like, there's a lot of, of ratcheting up that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and it adds a degree of difficulty of, did it not work, whatever X was over the last two years, or did it not work yet? Because we didn't have the infrastructure or because we didn't like, it wasn't necessarily what we were trying to do uh, failed. It just, we had, hadn't got all the pieces put together. Professional development being a major one, right. For so many educators, they still 67% feel like they're not fully, you know, uh, prepared to do all the virtual things that they were asked to do. And, and that's understandable. That takes time, you know, kind of uprooting Indian industry, um, to be able to do that. So I, I applaud you for the, the efforts of the research and the validation because there's so many variables that is going to be really tough to pinpoint. Um, hopefully there are some things that we know, okay, this clearly didn't work and we can avoid that because it was triage. It was an emergency. But we've talked for two years about the silver linings and now we're starting to finally see some of those um, not just be hypothetical, but actually be in practice. So what would your, you know, what would your opinion be on what are those silver linings that we've kind of come through the other side and, you know, these things really did show value and we want to keep them moving forward. This is sort of a strange place to start with your question, <laughs> but I do think, um, I do think one of the silver linings is that there was a really important spotlight on the inequities in the system again, right? Everything from who had access to devices and broadband, um, you know, the, the, the digital equity. Now there are a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of money and a lot of bills, even some coming that are going to work on that and, and try to close that gap. But 
um, you know, that from that perspective, from the perspective of, um, you know, one of the things that was, you know, I would see when I would go into a, a large school district is you only get access to the courses that are in your physical building. And so, you know, equity across school districts is really unfair, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, I grew up again in, in rural New Mexico, northern New Mexico, and I, I didn't know there was such a thing as an AP course until I landed at college. And these kids were like getting, you know, credit. And I was like, wait, what, what's that thing? I, <laughs> I didn't know that, that was a thing, right? And so I do think one of the silver linings is like, is having more people realize that, you know, there is these massive inequities, that there are things we can do about it, that there is a path to operating um, in a way that we really give a much more even playing field in terms of access opportunities, um, et cetera. You know, I think the other big silver lining for, for, for us is it has allowed us to um, really think deeply, you know, we were in triage too. We were adding, you know, uh, clients, uh, partners, working with them to design programs, enrolling students, the entire executive team at this company was enrolling students, you know, uh, around the clock, basically. We were all part of that operational, you know, experience um, during that time. Once we were able to step back from it, I think it really did highlight for us, what are the pieces of our model that we actually just feel really good about? And what are the things we actually have to improve? So the things we feel really good about is, we're not so dogmatic that we are going to come into a school district and say, this is how it must be done, right? We, we want to come in and understand and really think about how do we build with you and design with you a sort of more of a bespoke. And we feel really good about that. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have some non-negotiables around like what does quality look like? Um, but it does mean we get to, you know, be somewhat, some, somewhat flexible in the way that we work with and design. And I think, you know, putting educators first um, in that, right, meeting them where they are too and helping to bring them along uh, is super important. So we feel good about that. I think we feel good about um, just leaning on, you know, quality virtual really is about meaningful relationships. It's about really high quality instruction uh, using awesome materials, right? Um, and it's about a culture focused on, back to my first point, it's about a culture that's focused on the success of like all kids. Every kid, all kid are worthy of, you know, tremendous experiences. Um, and that brings us back to that equity point. So I think there's some sort of silver linings for us. Um, you know, I think also the, the final thing I'll say is I think people have a sense of possibility. I think educators have a sense of possibility around us that we talk to. They're starting to, people are starting to get like, oh, wow, I could use this, you know, as a tool in my ecosystem. It's not a replacement. It is a thing in the ecosystem of how I think about teaching and learning. I think the more that we can get it into the the into the muscle memory of the system instead of being in competition with it, I think that's that's a, a huge that's gonna be a huge win for us and for us as an industry is what I mean as a field um, and for educators too because I think when you bring capacity uh, to districts and to educators it's a it's a it's a beautiful thing right it's a hard job <laughs> so to the extent we can bring capacity and think about you know creatively how do we move forward I think you said something really important there about it being muscle memory. I think a lot of times we think that virtual learning is replacing teachers and what the teachers can do and the tools that they bring to the table. But the thing is, is that it's really, it's really a support, right? It's really providing a really strong foundation for them. So they're not having to go and create lesson, you know, create really high quality content all the time and be doing that. They really get to hone in on their craft and build in on the relationships. And, and 
virtual learning also gives you these virtual tools give you really great data that you cannot have without it. Like you can track only so much, but the thing about it is that doesn't travel well, right? You're the only holder of the information is how it used to be. You know, even, even four years ago, I would want information on a student. I have to go down to the filing cabinet that's down there and sort through these big packs of paper that students right. have. And that's telling me this little anecdotal information of a person's idea. And then, yeah. and sometimes the notes are, this student is basically a pain, <laughs> Good luck to you. But there's luck, no information yeah. about why are they a pain? Is it because they are having trouble at home or is it because they're not reading? What What is the real issue of that? And that's the beautiful piece about virtual learning and even just this like massive shift that everyone had. Parents had an opportunity to see that their students were not performing at the level that they thought they might be just be from that's this right. one little tiny conference that you have every single year with your students. You don't really understand what is available and what's out there. And, and that's the important piece of it is that it should be muscle memory. It shouldn't be this competition. It, it really is there to lift everybody up and use you a virtual. We're all virtual right now. We all have virtual jobs and we're able to do that and do it well. So we have to be able to teach our students and prepare them that way for the future of work, because that's what it's going to be. It's not going to be while we're shifting back to offices and things like that, we're going to see more hybrid things because that's just how it's going to be. It's going to be too busy to commute. The roads are going to be too, you know, it's just not, it's not efficient. It's more efficient for somebody to get up, go into their home office and be able to work and not have to spend all this time with, you know, all their energy is focused on work. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things you raise up there just to like tease out is I think another silver lining, you know, for as painful as it was, um, we removed a lot of barriers uh, to innovation in that in that sprint. So, and and you know, two of them in particular. One of them is, you know, we really did deploy a lot of infrastructure and a lot of devices. Uh, and so you've got you know close to ninety percent of schools now with one to one. You know, I think the other thing is from a teacher comfort with technology. It, it's you know the polling on teachers too is like you know, 89% of them or something like that feel like I actually understand and can use technology better. Um, and one of the things, I mean, you know, I, I worked on some, at, uh, I actually did the painful thing of rereading it, but I had done a, a paper on blended learning in 2014. And I reread it recently because I thought, oh, how much do they get wrong? Which was was not, you know, we won't talk about that. There's some things I got wrong. <laughs> but I think one of the things that, you know, was I'd called out in that was, it's the it's it's the change that's so hard, right? So it's adapting to new. It's like showing people what's po- you know what you always say in change management. You have to sort of show people what's possible, and then ask them to move to it. You can't just say move. Um, and I think in that you know it reminds me that like as people get more comfortable and as they saw it, you know it goes back to those parents that are like, I didn't love this, but I can kind of see where it could go. Um, that's when you start to really get you know change management. Um, some some wings around that. Well, the good news is that virtual learning, e-learning, remote learning, distance learning, all these things have existed for over two decades. And so it really wasn't like, oh, no, what are we going to do? We have no playbook for this. There's no research out there. There is a lot of um, legacy data and research and innovation that has been happening. So 
I think there is a, that gives us a little more confidence in future and the hope of the role of technology. Um, and the most exciting thing is that over the pandemic, technology moved from a, a supplement or an ancillary to not the core, but a major part of the core uh, moving forward, which is really something I think all of us in the ed tech industry had been pushing for for a while that, oh, things could be better if this was more a part of the core and not um, kind of an add-on of, oh, we'll also have a lab or we'll also have uh, some online programs, but if we really thought of it holistically. Um, but I want to go back to what you said about being flexible in your design and giving the teachers what they need when they need it. That is a fundamental shift from the last hundred years of education where traditional publishers of textbooks were the experts and they handed that curriculum down and they expected the teachers to conform to, to the book. And with the rise of state standards, uh, that didn't jive and there was a lot of gaps and that created a lot more work for educators to figure out what was what. And so much of their time was sucked into that and grading papers and all the other kind of bureaucracy that has been poured onto them. My hope, and I would love to get your take on this, is the future of teaching, right? We're in this big teacher mm. shortage. Technology is not the silver bullet by any means, but it is, I think, maybe the great enhancer to the teaching experience and to the student learning experience. And is there a scenario where technology can come up on the, the educator in a way that makes teaching what it was meant to be to make it more fun to make it right. more passionate and engaging and take off the load of a lot of the bureaucracy and the grading of the papers and the creating of content and allow teachers to really spend one-on-one -on -one time with students small group time and actually um, be directing the learning in ways that it makes the profession more of a fulfilling job because that's why so many teachers got into it and then over the last decade we've just kind of ruined them is there a chance that technology can can help save the day in the short term but as it kind of has but then also more in the long term moving forward that's a great question um you know i think when i talk to uh teachers that teach with us i think one of the things that usually comes up in some form or another uh is I spend more time now with students, like actually doing, giving feedback to kids, developing relationships that aren't, uh, that are actually fairly meaningful, right? That aren't just, I know their name and I know what their favorite like sports team is. Like they actually see them, know them, have an understanding of them as a whole, a whole person and a whole brain. <laughs> um, and so that, that's one of the things that comes up and it's, it's not a surprise, right? When, when you look at where teachers spend their time, um, you know, every time, you know, I've done a, a, a sort of research on where they spend their time in a 40 hour week, you know, up to 10, 10 plus hours of that. And much of it at home is spent on content and content creation, um, trying to find things. That's why, you know, Pinterest is actually one of the number one content sources for teachers. Um, and teacher pay teachers is, is popular. It's because it's, it's actually hard to do. Um, it's, it's hard to curate everything. Um, it's a job on top of a job, if you will, uh, on top of many other jobs that we've sort of laid at the, the feet of our, our teaching force. Um, and, you know, I really do think, I remember my, my, uh, my sister is a teacher in New York and, um, you know, I remember her first years where she was just, and that is with curriculum, to be clear, that is being handed curriculum and still needing to figure out how to curate uh, through it. And so, you know, I kept saying to her, like, just make it through the first, like, two or three years. You'll start to get routines. You'll start to get stuff that's working. Um, I do think that's a role that um, technology can play. But it's not about the, again, it's not about the technology. You know, at Edmentum, it's about 
the very large team of content creators and curriculum writers that we have. Um, and our ability to do that across, you know, what is a team of 100 versus one, right? So like our ability to create content to make it standards aligned, to be thoughtful about here are some places where you might want to curate in some of the stuff that you love and is like makes it yours, um, I think is huge. And, and we can do that because we have, you know, we have the technology and the platforms that allow us to do it. Um, I think it's a mistake to think that, again, back to my original it's a mistake to think we hand teachers curriculum, even the most rigid curriculum in a in, in a brick and mortar, like regular sort of traditional classroom. And they just like implement it like song and song and line or whatever. <laughs> like, like, that's not how that happens. And I think so. I think that's that's part of it is the curriculum. I would say the other thing that, um, you know, I think is true is back to my notion of if we can think about this as part of the ecosystem your virtual teachers and your in-person teachers, if you will, they should be a teaching team, right? We should be thinking about how we're using paras, how we're using, um, you know, folks in the building in a different way, particularly in places where um, they really are having a hard time attracting uh, resources, you know, staff in general, but frankly, very specific subject areas is what goes first, right? It's, it's hard to get some of these subjects. Um, you know, if you've got two kids that want to take physics, probably not hiring a physics teacher. Um, and I think that's where you can start to think about it's not mine or somebody else's, it's, it's a team. And how do we think about the team? So as we come to the end of our time, often on the show, we like to end on a high note. We are a half glass full kind of show. Uh, we want to bring inspiration. Um, tell us a story of success. Uh, if there's a, a campus or a district or even an internal uh, development that you've had coming, you know, through the pandemic and going into the summer, this next school year, um, give our, our audience a little bit of hope for the future and a, and a nice story of success. That's a great question. Um, I'm actually going to tell a personal story of success. So, you know, I, like lots of parents out there, had um, had kids who also went through, uh, you know, going remote in March um, of 2020. And I had a daughter who really wasn't loving middle school. Seventh, eighth grade were not great for her. Uh, she then effectively was doing all of ninth grade uh, at home. And she was here and she is one of those kids that thrived. Um, she was able to reset socially, mentally. Uh, she was able to find a rhythm and a cadence that actually worked for her and um, found it to be, you know, this is not for all kids, but like her a level of executive function, uh, self-actualization is just, it's, we're in a, it's a different kid. Um, and part of that was just owning her own process. She would you know, get up and get dressed every morning. And we set up a little office downstairs for her. So she wasn't in her bedroom, which I think is actually a huge piece of like mentally preparing for your day. Um, and, you know, she's ended up, you know, had a pretty good, she went back in person um, in the sort of latter part of the year, but it was a really important reset for her. And I think one of the things she saw in all of that was I really can drive my own, my own journey. So She's figuring out what do I want to do? What courses am I interested in? She no longer thinks that like what her school offers is what she has to take. It's incredible, right? So she has decided she's actually taking U.S. history with Adventum. Um, she's going to get credit for that and is going to be able to take another course, which is um, AP Women's Studies, which she really wants to take. And I just think like her ability to curate her own journey 
um, and think about who she wants to be. And, um, you know, in person, online, you know, being able to take, you know, she took a, she took a dance class virtually. That wasn't a huge success, but she tried it. <laughs> um, and I just think like those are the kinds of stories that I actually, like as a mom, I want those stories for all kids. I want them to feel like they are the owners of this ultimately, um, that they get to try some things, that they get to not be successful at some things, um, that things don't work out, uh, that they get to test their resilience and um, learn some like, you know, key skills. She's just, you know, I feel much better sending out, out to the world, right? She's now a rising junior, um, just feel much better, right? About her ability even to advocate for herself, right? She was no longer... I was no longer advocating in that environment. Uh, she was really having to advocate for herself. And um, that's my success story is, is my daughter. And uh, you know, I have a, you know, I think uh, I think our kids are, you know, incredibly capable. Uh, and they really, you know, they know what they want, they know what works for them in virtual and what doesn't. Um, and I think we have to ask them, you know, and um, and design for those kids and and let them show us what they're capable of. I love it. And again, we've talked about it in our show before, like the voices of e-learning aren't just ed tech companies, aren't just administrators, aren't just policymakers, but parents and students, um, you know, really, right. I think, found their voice over the pandemic. And that is one of the biggest silver linings that anyone listening today in any position that you're in, um, we need to keep that going because the students 100%. will rise to the occasion. They have the resiliency and oftentimes they know more what they need than we do as adults because they're living in this time of uh, digital evolution um, in a different way than, than we did in our generations. And so we've got to listen. We've got to lead them, of course, but we also have to listen. So Thank you for ending with that personal story. It's always, um, you know, great to hear uh, stories of school success and student success. But when it's personal, it just really um, brings home that this the the stakes have never been higher in education, and we need to really, um, really work, keep working hard. I know it's been a hard two years for all of us, but now is the time to really continue the momentum and the change that we want to see um, in this great opportunity that we have to build. Uh, you know, better and better uh, education for all students um, and really bring that equity. So uh, this has been a great episode. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. us. Thank you both. Um, we will have you back on in the fall to talk about some other exciting topics that we didn't get a chance to talk to uh, talk about today. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, and of course, Lena, thank you as always for uh, co-hosting and bringing um, the best conversation to our audience every week. Um, thank you to the listeners, of course, for uh, watching this episode or listening to this episode. Be sure to check out our website um, on marketscale.com or uh, listen to us wherever you find your podcast. Um, thanks again. And remember to always, always keep learning. Bye, everybody.